Amen. Word of God has been read in our hearing. Let us pray for understanding and application. Heavenly Father, we come once again having prayed the prayers and having sung the songs. Now we come, Lord, and pray that we might hear the word that would bring conviction and new life, bring encouragement, bring to us a greater revelation of who Christ is and what he has done in this world and in particular in our lives. Lord, we come this morning needing a word from you. Come needing to hear from you. And so we pray that you would come by your spirit and that you would teach us, that you would open your word to us and that your word would indeed become alive, a living word in our hearts, bearing fruit, fruit unto eternal life. Change us, Lord, this morning. Lord, if there's anyone here, Lord, who, who maybe for the first time will be hearing the testimony of Jesus Christ, I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would delight in making it effectual in their life. They would not be the same person who came as they leave. Lord, we know that, Heavenly Father, that you are able to do all this and more. We pray this morning that you would be willing to magnify yourself in this place in marvelous, unanticipated, glorious ways according to your word. Do it for your glory. Do it for our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as some of you know, I was born and raised in a small town, very, very, very small town. Right, Philip? It's really not much, not much to it at all. I mean, there really wasn't much to do. There was just heat in the summer and snow boots and the shovels in the winter. That was it. Life was simple. But oftentimes, it was boring. I mean, there were no McDonald's. There were no shopping malls. We didn't even have street lights. At nighttime, you walked down dirt roads, and if the moon was not shining, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was dark. We lived on a dirt road. It's that same dirt road that my mother still lives on today. High school I went to, my senior class graduated approximately 50 people. And we were one of the larger high schools in the area. 
Growing up in a small town, uh, what I have come to discover, you don't realize it when you're in it, but when you move away, you begin to discover certain things. You discover that there is a such thing as people call small town mentality. Some of you might know what I'm talking about. It is this idea that when people come from out of town, particularly from a large city, and they come into a small town like ours, they tend to mock it. You know, they tend to not think much of it, and they wonder how anyone could live in such a place all year long. Soon, If you live in that small town and you hear that enough, soon you begin to question and wonder the same things. And suddenly you begin to feel inferior. And suddenly you begin to feel insignificant. And suddenly you begin to get a sense that life is but a fishbowl. And you are small fish in this small pond. So that when you do go, if you ever do get to go to the city, you find how difficult it is for you to fit in. What I've seen over and over and over again, that many people find themselves back in the small town, away from the city, back where everyone knows your name and they're always glad you came. Where all troubles are the same, where everybody knows your name. I grew up in one of those towns, and so I understand what Jesus is dealing with because Jesus grew up in one of those towns. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He was a Nazarene, the Bible tells us. He was born in Bethlehem. Yes, we understand that, but... He lived and he was raised in Nazareth. And Nazareth was a little town, much like the town I was raised in, a small town, an insignificant town, a town in which apparently many other people there suffered from small town mentality. They began to listen and hear the things that people were saying about their town. You remember, someone raised the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Apparently, that was the common understanding and the common talk about those from the larger towns around Nazareth. They look at Nazareth, they probably go through Nazareth, and they'd say, who could possibly want to live here year-round? Could anything good come out of such a small and insignificant town? And apparently, beloved, apparently those in the town had even begun to drink the Kool-Aid. And to begin to think, nothing significant can come out of Nazareth. And yet this is where Jesus came from. And this, as we see in Mark chapter 6, is where Jesus has gone back to. 
Jesus has headed back home. After the miraculous and powerful demonstrations of Christ and his kingdom throughout the land, Jesus decides that it's time once again to visit the folks back at home. He's going to visit Nazareth once more time. He's going to go back to his hometown. And this isn't the first time that Jesus has been to Nazareth since he began his public ministry, since he'd moved away. In Luke chapter 4, the Bible says that Jesus had gone to Nazareth. And when he had come to Nazareth, he had went to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, he had begun to teach. And they didn't like what he was teaching then. And in Luke chapter 4, the Bible says that they were so offended by what Jesus was saying that they sought to kill Jesus. His hometown people took him out to a cliff and were going to throw him over the cliff except Jesus, being who he is, was able to escape them and save his life for another day. Now, in Mark chapter 6, we see the account that Jesus comes back to Nazareth, but this time he brings his boys with him. This time he's not alone. This time there's no seeking to kill him. For the last time, he comes and the disciples come with him. Notice what the Bible says, that he went away from there where he was and came to his hometown, Nazareth, and the disciples followed him. The disciples followed him. I think that is very instructive because this is what disciples do. Disciples follow. Disciples follow. They go where Jesus goes. They do what Jesus does. They follow him, not from a distance. But disciples follow. They're with Christ. They, they follow him where he goes in his footsteps. And they're with him. Not casually. Not from a distance. When it says that they followed him, it doesn't mean that they followed him on Twitter. No, true discipleship is being close enough to Jesus to hear what he is saying and being ready and willing at any moment to do what he says do. And I fear most people who consider themselves to be disciples really don't want to do any more than follow Jesus as if he had a Twitter account. Every now and then, checking his Twitter to see if he's posted something interesting. Rather than seeking every day, all day, where he goes, I will go. What he says, I will do. True discipleship follows Christ wherever he might go. And here, his disciples follow him to his hometown. And when Jesus gets to his hometown, what does he do? Well, he does what he always does. The Bible says he gets to Nazareth and he begins to preach. He didn't just come home for a visit. Jesus came home to preach. Uh-oh. That's always a problem. 
That's always a problem. Someone has said that that was probably his first mistake. For those back home, don't mind you coming to visit. Those back home, don't mind you uh, reassociating yourselves with them and and, and reacquainting yourselves with family and friends. But God forbid that you would stand up and begin to preach. That you would begin to preach and talk about the kingdom of God and talk about the nature of sin and the conditions of their soul and the need for them to repent and come to Christ before it's too late. Jesus went home and he began to preach. And the Bible says that they were amazed. They were amazed at him. They marveled at him. They marveled at him. Now you got to understand what they marveled at. They weren't marveling at the person of Jesus because Jesus wasn't much to look at. He didn't look like Brian. He didn't capture your attention as soon as he walked into the room. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. It goes on to say that he had no beauty that we should desire him. Apparently, he wasn't much to look at. And what amazed him? The Bible tells us it's not that he came from a well-to-do family because he didn't. It's not that he was, in, he was educated in the finest of rabbinical schools because he wasn't. They marveled as they took note of his teaching. It had wisdom like they had never heard. It had the wisdom of God that cut straight to the heart, that convicted people of where they were and what they were doing. It caused people to listen and in listening have to come to a decision on whether or not what he is saying is true. They were not allowed to just dismiss what he said. Not only did they take note of the wisdom of God, they took note of the power of God. They had heard about all the many miracles that Jesus had been doing in around the territory. And they took note of the miracles and the power with which he spoke and the power that manifested and gave evidence to the fact that what he said was true. They took note. And yet, though they were enthralled by Jesus... It didn't lead them to praising. Though they were fascinated, it did not lead them to faith. But instead, they mocked him. Small town mentality begins to kick in. And they say, who is this young whippersnapper? kid who is this who does he think he is we know him 
He come from around the way. Isn't he that carpenter? Didn't we see him walking around here with hammer and nail not long ago? Who does he think he is? Isn't he Mary's illegitimate son? Y'all remember the rumors? Now he's going to come teach us. We know she got pregnant before she got married. Isn't that Mary's boy? Who is this young whippersnapper? His brothers and sisters still live around here. You aren't nobody. Remember you? You that little nappy-headed boy used to run around here with my son. I know who you are. Used to hang with my brother. I know he was no good. They mock him. They mock him because they saw Jesus as no better than themselves. They saw Jesus as no better than themselves. They saw Jesus as no more significant than themselves. Contrast the people in Nazareth with the people Jesus has just encountered. Contrast the attitude of the people of Nazareth with Jairus, whose daughter has just been raised from the dead. Contrast the people of Nazareth with the woman who just got cured of her issue of blood. Contrast the people of Nazareth with the man who has just been delivered from the demons and living amongst the tombs. They all knew who Jesus was. They all knew their need of Jesus. They all knew their insignificance in the presence of Christ. And Jesus comes home to his own people. And they perceive him as no better than themselves. You know why? You know why? The reason is it's because they had a few, they thought they had a few facts about Jesus. They thought they knew him. They thought they knew him, and therefore this kind of familiarity kind of breeds contempt. Indeed, beloved. And this is just this should be a warning to us all this morning. It is possible to have quite a few facts about Jesus. And not ever really knowing. Was he from Nazareth? Yeah. Was he a carpenter? Yeah. Was he Mary's son? Yes. You can know all those things and still not know who Jesus is. You can have all kind of knowledge, pray the prayers, sing the songs, enter the waters of baptism. Partake of the Lord's Supper. Know all the Christian lingo. But your life never, never has been changed. You've never stopped for a moment trusting in yourself and thrown yourself upon the mercy of God. Because you really don't know 
who Jesus is. These facts are good, but they don't lead you to faith. If they don't lead you to faith, they are of no use. In fact, they only compound your condemnation. They only make matters worse for you in the end, for the Bible reminds us to whom much is given, much will be required. And the more you know about Jesus and still refuse to repent and trusting in yourself, the greater will be your condemnation in the end. And so rather than faith in Christ, they were offended. They were offended. Rather than believing in Christ, rather than having faith in him, they were offended. Rather than believing in Christ, they blasted Christ. Well, this is what most people do, you know, because Jesus is polarizing. Jesus is polarizing. And listen, listen, beloved. If you don't believe and have faith in Jesus, ultimately you will blaspheme him. The only thing that will keep you from blaspheming Christ is faith and trust in him. Because faith and trust in him means that you truly understand who he is. If you don't, have faith and trust in him, sooner or later, you will blaspheme him. And this is what they did. They took offense at Jesus in verse 4. The New Living Translation says that they were offended and refused to believe. They were offended. Imagine that. They were offended by Jesus. They were offended by the one whom the Bible says in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, went about doing good. They were offended. They were offended by the one who, was, who had brought to them the power of God and the wisdom of God. They were offended. They were offended by the one who was willing to offer himself up for their sins that they might be reconciled with God. They were offended. They were offended by the one who had left his heavenly glory and took upon himself the form of a servant and walked upon lowly undeserving humanity that he might lift that humanity up into the presence of God. They, they, they were offended. They were offended by the one who personally who personally came unto his own people. They were offended by the one, Jesus of Nazareth, who did not forget where he came from. And who didn't send disciples to his hometown, but came himself. And they, 
They, they were offended. The one full of love and mercy and grace and truth. This is the one at whom they took offense. And while Jesus... Jesus might have marveled at the offense. And Jesus might have wondered at the offense. Jesus was not surprised by the offense. In fact, the prophecy in Isaiah 53, if you read on, prophesies that he would be despised and rejected. That he would indeed be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So Jesus looks at them and says, a prophet is without honor not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and even in his own household. Jesus does not forget where he came from. He knows where he he came from, and yet it is these who reject him. It is they who reject Jesus. You know, this is so instructive, again, that we understand that this rejection of Christ is ultimately their condemnation. Did you know that the condemnation of God is upon people not because God has rejected them, but because they reject God? That's the condemnation. Romans 1 and 19 and following reminds us that no one will be able to say, God rejected me. That's why I'm condemned. No, the storyline will be that you have rejected God. No one in hell will argue that they are there because God rejected them. will be populated by those who rejected Christ. They will be there because they refused to believe. And Jesus, in response to them, Jesus was amazed, the Bible says. He he marveled. He was amazed and he marveled at their lack of faith. He was amazed that they didn't believe. He was amazed that they didn't believe because they had every reason to believe. They were without excuse. He had been given every chance. This is not a stranger talking to them. This is Jesus. This is not somebody that comes out of nowhere. They know him. And they reject him. Even more, 
This was the Son of God. He brought the message of faith and grace to them. And rather than believe, and rather than trust, they do what the Bible says in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 8. They forfeit the grace of God that could be theirs. Because Jesus himself came. Again, I am, am cautioned here and reminded that our amazement with Jesus must lead to faith and repentance. And that's because you know facts about Jesus does not mean you know Christ. When I first got on Facebook, personally, I first got on Facebook, I found that there were these people who wanted to be friends with me. And they were people who I had known, maybe in elementary school, junior high school, high school, and things like that. They were people I had known from way back, and they wanted to be friends with me. They wanted to befriend me because they thought they knew me. When really all they knew were some facts about me. They didn't know me. They had, they had no context since, since God had come into my life and changed me and made me a new man. They didn't know me. The person that they knew is dead. And they're trying to befriend the dead person. Beloved, when Jesus comes, Jesus is not looking for somebody to befriend him on Facebook. He's not interested in you and I knowing some facts about him. He's not interested in casual acquaintances. Not interested. And you befriending him. You must become a disciple. And you must follow him. You must know him in the pardon of your sins and the new life that comes from being born again. You must know him as the wisdom of God and the power of God. You must know him as Lord and Savior. You must know him as the sovereign king of your life. I got off of Facebook personally because I didn't need those friends. I had enough friends who truly know who I am. And I follow me on Facebook. And walking with me in the Lord. This is true discipleship, and the disciples follow Christ, and those who thought they knew him blasphemed him. The ones who knew him when he grew up, the ones 
who knew him as he played. The ones who knew him as he worked alongside Joseph. The ones who knew him as he lived with his brothers and sisters in Nazareth. But the ones who really didn't know him as Lord and Savior and Master. And so they didn't follow him. But the disciples did. Because the disciples knew him. And you know, the disciples didn't know him in Nazareth. Disciples didn't know him as a boy. Disciples didn't know him as he lived and played with his brothers and sisters. The disciples weren't around when Jesus had the hammer and the nail doing his carpentry work. Well, those were insignificant. They knew him as the Lord and Savior. They knew him as master and king. And that's why it says, after he went and left that town, began teaching in other villages, he called disciples to himself. And what did they do? They came. They came. And they came, and he, he sends, and he, and he takes the 12, and he sends them out. He commissions them. Jesus, indeed, is not deterred by the lack of faith in Nazareth. And the reason he's not deterred, one, because he has come to understand the necessity of the rejection, but still he knows that the kingdom of God is at hand. And there is no time to be wallowing in self-pity. There's no time to be mired down in rejection. The kingdom of God has to be proclaimed. So he calls his disciples to him. He begins to send them out on their first mission. The disciples have been with Jesus all this time. And wherever Jesus goes, Jesus has been leading the parade. Jesus has been leading the, the preaching. Jesus has been doing the teaching. Jesus has been doing the healing. And Jesus says, boys, now it's time. And he sends them out. Do you notice, do you notice the sovereignty of Christ and the care of Jesus? In this, the Bible says that Jesus calls. He calls them. Jesus sends He sent them. Jesus gives them authority. Jesus charges them. The prerogative all along belongs to Jesus. Why is that important? That is important because this is going to be their first time away from Jesus. This is going to be their very first mission. And Jesus does not call them to anything, but that he provides for everything that he calls them to. They're going to succeed. You know why they're going to succeed? Not because they're so smart. Not because they're so eloquent. Not because they're so good to look at. They're going to succeed. Because it's Christ who called them. It is Christ who sent them. It is Christ who charged them. It is Christ who has given them authority. 
they're going to succeed because it's Christ who succeeds. Jesus has not called them to anything that he does not first provide all the things necessary for the fulfillment of that calling. It was Augustine who prayed, Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. You're going to send us out, give us authority over the demons. You're going to send us out to proclaim the gospel. Go before us in open hearts. Go before us and prepare minds that they might receive the message that we are going to proclaim. It ought to be our prayer all the time. Don't ever, don't ever call yourself going out to proclaim. Don't ever call yourself going out to minister, to teach, to instruct, to show forth the nature of the kingdom of God without first having prayed, Jesus, in your power, go before me. Break down the walls. Break down the barriers. Soften hearts, open eyes, unclog the ears so that they might hear, so that they might know, so that they might receive, so that they might repent, so that they might believe. Jesus sends the twelve out and he sends them on their, their first mission but he doesn't send them far. Isn't, isn't, isn't that interesting? He doesn't send them halfway around the world. We haven't gotten to that part yet. Jesus sends them out into a few towns over here. He says, don't go too far. In the way, I'm going to make sure you don't go too far. Don't take any money. <laughs> don't take any clothes. Don't take any food. You ain't got no money, no clothes, no food. You're not getting very far. Don't take any provisions. In fact, if you go to Matthew of this same account in chapter 10, it reminds us that Jesus sends them out to his own people. As he had gone to his own people, Jesus sends his disciples to familiar territory. He sends them to the Jewish people. And sends them to the Jewish people. And notice that he doesn't send them out by themselves. He says, you guys make sure y'all go out two by two. (laughs) Okay, it's rough out there. You're going to need each other. And he sends them out two by two. And he guarantees their success because he gave them authority. And yet he also reminds them this important truth. You're going to be rejected. Isn't it instructive that they had just seen Jesus rejected in Nazareth? And if Jesus could be rejected, guess what? You're going to get rejected. The faithful proclamation of the gospel, the faithful calling of people to repentance, even amongst your own people, even in your own household, prepare yourself for rejection. 
But then he says, but don't get caught up in the rejection. Don't allow the rejection to deter you. Simply dust the sand off your feet and move on. You know, there's an urgency here to what Jesus tells his disciples to do. There's an urgency. He sends them out with a message, and the message is faith and repentance. But notice, he doesn't send them with anything else. He tells them, all you need right now, all you need is the words that you're going to proclaim. That's it. That's all you need. Because I don't want you to get distracted by any of these peripheral issues. Right now, the issue is not so much your own welfare, but the fact that there are those among you who need to be saved. Who need to hear the message of the kingdom. Who need to repent of their sins and believe in Christ. They won't need anything but the message of the gospel of the kingdom. And if there are those who will receive the kingdom, then you should stay with them, that you should rejoice with them. But if there are those who will not receive the message of the kingdom, if they refuse to believe the kingdom, don't linger. Don't linger. Shake the dust off of your feet. For they have already judged themselves. One of the most popular, if not the most popular verse in the Bible is John 3.16. I'm sure forgave it, show of hands. Just about everybody here could say it. I won't test you, Wendell. But rarely do we go on to read 17 and 18. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But then 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. They're condemned already. Do you know that what's, do you know what sends people to hell? Do you know why people stand under the condemnation of God? What sends people to hell is not so much their individual sin as it is the fact they refuse to believe. Unbelief. They refuse to trust in Christ. Yeah, yeah, yes. Individual sins are are bad, and individual sins are a manifestation 
of our depravity and our rebellion against God as we sin every day and move ourselves further and further away from God and further down into the pit of hell. But ultimately, ultimately, what condemns humanity is not just individual sins, but ultimately is the fact that they have refused to believe in the Son of God. It is unbelief. In fact, it is unbelief is the reason why they continue to hold on to their sins. It's your unbelief that keeps you doing what you're doing and you know you shouldn't be doing it. It is unbelief. It it keeps me moving in directions I shouldn't be moving in. Because if you truly believed who Jesus is, if you truly believe that he has come and he is a savior, he has come into the world, if you truly believe that there is a hell that is waiting on those who refuse to believe and refuse to repent, if you truly believe That God is a holy and righteous God and his righteous indignation stands against all those who refuse to have faith in Christ Jesus. And that indignation and that wrath is an eternal wrath. If people really believe that, we turn from our sins and we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. We do it today. The problem is, people just don't believe. I pray there's nobody in here. But Jesus tells the disciples when you run into something like that, shake the dust off your feet. Don't linger, move on. As my professor, and, and um, we, were, we were in class one time, and he was doing a, um, he was doing a devotional on John 1 and 1, on, on the, and he was talking about the Trinity, how Jesus Christ is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And somebody asked him, well, what do you do when Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, and they want to talk about it? And he says... Don't waste kingdom time. Don't waste kingdom time. Reminded here, Jesus is telling his disciples, don't linger. There are those who need, who we need to hear. There are those whose hearts have been prepared. Move on and continue preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I have sheep who are not yet in the fold who need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Don't linger. It should remind us that I love it. Our God is a compassionate God. He really is. He's a compassionate God. He is, he is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, willing to forgive iniquity and transgressions to all those who repent. 
He's compassionate God. He is a loving God. Don't get the idea from this passage or any other passage that God is impatient. He is not. Don't get the idea that God is not compassionate. He is. He is long-suffering. He is willing and, and he is able to forgive anyone who would come to him in repentance and faith. And at the same time, our God is faithful, and he is holy, and he will not excuse those who refuse to repent, who refuse to trust in Christ, who refuse to believe, who refuse to turn from their sins. And we know that. We understand that. And that's why Paul says, In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11, we, we who know the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. This is serious. That's why it goes on to say, behold the favorable time whom the Lord is at hand. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, now is the day. There's an urgency with which Jesus sends his disciples to preach and proclaim the gospel to remind the people, even the Jews of that day, today salvation is at hand. Repent and believe. Today the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe. You know, the interesting thing is, is that there are no more recorded visits of Jesus to Nazareth. No more recorded visits of Jesus to Nazareth. Perhaps this was Jesus's. Final time there. And they harden their hearts. Beloved, I pray there's no one here this morning who's taken for granted the opportunity that you have today. The opportunity that you have today to repent of your sins and to trust Christ today. The writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long it is called today that none of you may be heartened by the deceitfulness of sins. Listen, beloved. Listen to me. Listen to the call of Christ. Do not harden your heart and be trapped into the deceitfulness of sins, into being deceived, into thinking that you are saved and you're not. There will be too many people who will go to hell even through the doors of the church. 
because of the deceitfulness of sin. They were deceived into believing. They never truly had to repent. They never truly had to trust Christ. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not, do not, do not harden your heart. That's in the rebellion. Because now, is the time, and today is the day to place your trust in Christ. I pray that everyone here would do it today, today. Let me pray for us. Lord, in a, in a group even this size, Lord, we don't want to be under any delusion that every heart here is right with you. We do not want to be under any delusion that everyone here has come to faith in Jesus Christ and repented of their sins and truly trust in him. And so we pray that even now there is not a hard heart here, but every heart would know what it means to be broken and therefore rejoice in Christ. Break hearts, Lord. Break our hearts. Let no one leave here, Lord except they have trusted Jesus. May they know that now is the time and today is the day. May no one be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. May they hear the voice of Jesus saying, Come unto me, all you are weary and I heavy laden. Come unto me and find rest. Come unto me and find the forgiveness of sin. Come unto me and find eternal life. May they hear Christ and know him, not as some carpenter, but know him as Savior and Lord. May they know him. In his holy name we pray. Amen.